Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, oh my God. Oh, let's tell, let's tell the viewing millions. I, I, we just did a whole introduction to our guests for this podcast, and I, wasn't, I hadn't pressed my button. He hadn't pressed record. And do you know what? It was gold. Gold. It was radio gold. Listeners, you're not going to understand it. Like, I was funny, but then I was sweet, and then I was touching. Alan was <laughs> hilarious, then he was insightful, and now all you're going to get is this drivel. It is a fabulous episode, and a kind of unusual, a little off-piste, as they say in skiing. Uh, this is such an exciting terms. episode, because it's a bit... Because what it is, is we... We're just talking yes. over each other now. See, I said it wouldn't go well. It, we, was, we were great so, listeners. I know you believe in us. So what happened was, there's this bloke called Florent Morellet, who had a, uh, who's French, obviously, and uh, who lived in New York, has lived in New York forever, had a restaurant, uh, in, a diner in the meatpacking district uh, called Florent, uh, when the meatpacking district was not the sort of swanky, uh, sort of, you know, sex in the city uh, area of New York that it is now. It was actually a place where meat was packed and... Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, and those who don't define as either, of the night would uh, frequent their business and sell their wares. And um, so the restaurant was this kind of oasis in this sort of place where most New Yorkers didn't go. Anyway, Florent became a legend partly because throughout the AIDS crisis, he was HIV positive and he used to put his, uh, you know, his um, white cell count and everything up on the menu. Uh, so extraordinary. That. Yes, and he and he was a big AIDS activist and. Anyway, so Florent is a, was an old friend of mine. And at one point, a few years ago, I was going to play him in a TV series. They were going to make a series about his uh, life. And it ended up not happening, which I think was a huge tragedy for all concerned. But um, the good thing about it was I got to know Florent more. I mean, I went, I used to go, you know, to, to the diner. Then it closed, uh, rather sadly. Um, you know, he was actually, he put kind of the meatpacking meat district on the map as twere and then when it went all swanky he couldn't afford the rent anymore and he got booted out God. Uh, but one time when I was over at his house in Brooklyn I met his neighbours and so did Chris and they are called Frank and Raphael yes. and they are these two artists and what this episode is about uh, listeners is about really New York during the AIDS crisis yes oft forgotten how incredible that period was and the amount of solidarity between all these people who were falling ill and the people who were supporting them and these yeah. guys literally lived through it and their story is unbelievable so and they're both such darlings and also coming out of a period of time of such great sort of openness and licentiousness if you will and mm. just suddenly going into this dark hell and nobody yeah. knew what was happening and people was drop literally dropping dead all around them it's interesting to hear 
hear it in a way that's told with great sort of warmth and looking back on it as survivors and also with great, great humour. Yeah, <laughs> just hilarious. I mean, especially Frank. He is Frank is so <laughs> funny, and he's actually a very famous artist in his own right. He's called Frank Holiday. So have a look at his yes. artwork; it's incredible. But he, honestly, that boy can tell a story and make you oh. have you howling with laughter. You, that you, you're like, why are we? We're, we're talking about you know, know the AIDS crisis, know, and you are cracking things. jokes. And but he, you know, he went through it. He, they both, yes. uh, he, they both deserve to laugh, and yeah. also they talk very. Sort of sweetly about their, and also sweetly about something that was kind of kind of dirty about how they met. Uh, oh, yes. So it's actually really great to talk to an older gay couple who are a both still alive, who isn't us for once, <laughs> but are also still together after all this time. And so, yeah, you're up for, put your feet up, grab a cocktail and a Valium, and listen to Frank and Raphael. Do you know what? I just I literally just put my foot in the air as as you said that. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Good to see you too. You do. Some orange juice they offer you? I got you. Got water. I got, I got water. Neat vodka. Oh, we have vodka. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I don't drink, so. Oh, you don't drink at all. Like, no, we don't, we don't drink. We think we're sober. <laughs> we don't give a shit though. We just don't drink. <laughs> well, I'm just not a good drunk. What do you oh, mean? I break out in what? Teeth, windows, doors. <laughs> <laughs> everything is in hives. Everything in his way. I'm happy for the time that I got to drink and I did it well. I did it really well, but then I just it got really bad. I didn't age well being a drunk. When did you just? What, did, what, what was 29 it? years ago. 29 years? Oh my God. But what was your moment when you thought, oh, I better stop? Well, let me see. Did you hit rock bottom? I did hit a bottom. It was never No, you know, I just, um, the 80s were a rough decade here in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, coming out of the 70s and the 80s, and it just got to a point where I couldn't, my body wouldn't take it. You know, my, the hangovers are so bad that my hair hurt. Oh, gosh, that's a good thing. You know, and I was like, AA was like really popular at one point here. It was kind of like a weird movement in like the early 80s because everybody was so f- fried from the 70s and early 80s that a lot of people, like all of the Warhol, I, the Warhol clan brought me in, like Bridget and Ronnie and, and all, all of them, like we all ended up there. So I just kind of like followed them in and... And we got sober. What, as an in into New York? Do you into New York. Well, I mean, it was like, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was like, there were like stars everywhere. It was like, <laughs> Hi, Liza. <laughs> Hi, Lou. Hi, David. Hi, Elton. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was, it was like amazing. It was kind of a moment in AA that, that was kind of a fun, pl- I mean, I hate, then it's sick. It's like, oh, AA was happening but it was happening all the stars were in AA everybody kind of went to well it was like AIDS was well everybody was like fucking freaked out about AIDS we had come out of the Studio 54 cocaine factory Lower East everybody was like you know we were like we're so fucked up and And then I think all the death pushed everybody like, yeah. and so everybody, we got to get fucking sober if we're going to get through this, you know, bury everybody. So everybody kind of went to AIDS and ACT UP. It was kind of interesting. They went from the clubs to social kind of things. Social purpose. Yeah, social purpose more. Mm. We had to get it together. Mm. No, I just stayed sober. 
It was easier. Did you, co- did you come to New York as an artist and you fell in with the Warhol crowd? Is well, that, yeah. I, I grew up in North Carolina. Got it. Went to North Carolina School of the Arts. I was a ballet dancer. Amazing. Yes. I can see that. Well, my greatest role was in Fantasia, the dancing elephants. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. Somebody gave me LSD mm-hmm. and it took me to MoMA. Oh. And I had never seen a mo- modern art. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, this is what I have to. I mean, I was an artist anyway, but I was like, I don't want to dance. I want to be a painter. Right. Oh, wow. And I quit school the next day and started on the journey. Amazing. And I. And then I went back to North Carolina to finish high school. <laughs> wow. High school? High school. I was here. I moved in 1973 when I was 16. Wow. I lived on Bank Street in the village. Wow. And you were... So- Very popular. <laughs> it was insane. Why? What do you mean? Well, I was like this beautiful little 16-year-old dancer in the village in the early 70s. Gosh, I mean... You just, like, bet at the ball. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'll be like Mr. British translating for people listening. But just because, because it's so interesting to know the context. Like, tell us the village was like the gay hub, would you say? The was village it? was the gay hub. The East Village had not happened yet. That was like the burnout from the 60s. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of like, you know, burnout hippies, like, you know, thinking the Vietnam, well, the Vietnam War was on. It was still on. The West Village, Christopher Street was... The main, the main gay drag, and you know we had like Marsha P was always there, and we had Rolla Rita was always there, and and it was it was it was packed on, it was packed all the time, all the way to the river from Sheridan Square to the river, right, and there was like boots and saddles and pieces. No, Pieces wasn't there yet. Ninth Circle was there. Ninth Circle? That sounds ominous. Oh, the Ninth Circle was amazing. The Ninth Circle was a rock and roll gay bar owned by the same person that owned Max's. Oh, but it was a gay version. Yeah. Which is a big sort of. uh, Where was that? That was on. That was on. Park Avenue South and 18th Street. Right. And it was where, you know, Lou Reed, Glitter Rock, David Bowie, um, all the glitter, all that. Edie Sedgwick, Patti Smith, that whole early rock and roll thing happened. And so Ninth Circle was on 10th Street and it was run by by the by the owner. And so it was like a rock and roll bar that played rock and roll rock and roll music on a jukebox. So it was like lots of like all the artists went there and and you know you would see I mean Warhol went there and Hockney and everybody went there and then it was also kind of a hustler bar mm. but it was it wasn't disco I mean it wasn't right. it yeah. wasn't like the disco thing because at that time there was Lamouche which was on the Upper East Side and Uncle Charles that was a whole different scene this was rock and roll and so it's kind of unusual that it wasn't disco because everyone everything was disco then. everything was disco and. This is where all the rock and roll boys went um, before the, anything in the East Village opened up because the bar opened up and then we started going there. And then rock and roll and the gay scene kind of merged at one point. Interesting. Um, but there was no place to go. The, the, we would go to Ninth Circle and we would go to Max's while it was open. And then we opened Club 57. 
Oh, yeah. And what was... It was a club on 57 St. Mark's Place, and it was the basement of a Polish church, and it was like a little room. And Irving Plaza was the rock and roll club on, on Irving, mm-hmm. Irving. And we started, it was a Pol- that was a Polish uh, concert hall. And we met this guy named Stanley, who had both of them. So we did a show called New Way Vaudeville at um, Irving Plaza. It had Klaus Nomi and it, I saw this. Joey was this in the, is this and, in the exhibition at MoMA? Like, yeah. I went to see that. This is all coming back to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Studio 54 was going up, so we decided to name it Club 57. Like it was the the um, the kids in the basement. It was based on like, you know, let's do a show. <laughs> right. We'll have an art show. <laughs> And like I was going to school with like Keith Haring and Kenny and Jean Michel and all of those we were that was our group, and then Ann Magnuson and oh, yeah. and the rock and roll, um, Lance Loud and all those pe- and so we did the show, art show. No, we well, we did the New Way Vaudeville ah, oh, that yeah. brought us all together, and then they they said hey let's go look at this space at fifty seven St Mark's Place and we went in it was like dusty and dark and they said do you want to open a club. And so we opened the club, and we just, that's how it started. And so that was like crossover, new wave. We weren't punk, and we weren't gay. I mean, you know, like, we weren't the saint. Right. We were the weirdo, we love William Burroughs and Fusion, and, you know, like like the beginning of pre-pyramid. I mean, we started doing drag stuff, and... So sort of the start of the East Village performance already queer scene. It was the first place. Wow. Do you remember when it was there ever a moment where it felt special that you were like something special is happening here with all those names you're talking about and all those? No, we didn't feel special, but there was a point where you know when it changed. It changed when we did a show called Trojan Women. They don't know anything about Greece, but they know a lot about Trojans. <laughs> <laughs> And that was Scott Whitman, Scott Whitman and oh, Mark Shaman. Who are like big Broadway, they did hair. Hairspray, Hairspray the musical, and right here it's movie scores. We had Playhouse 57. We decided to do a, a theater. And, you know, it was like none of us, we weren't, couldn't get a job in theater. We couldn't even get an audition. So we'll put on our own theater. And, you know, everything, the ceilings were low, so we'd like put everything up with like string and like a clamp light. It was very, it was very underground. And... So Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman came down and they did Trojan Women. And it was a musical version of the Trojan Women. And it became a huge hit. And we had lines out the door. Wow. So all of a sudden we were discovered. And this guy named Henry Post did an article in New York Magazine that said, this is the place where it is. So all of a sudden we were just these kids having fun, making fun of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we were making fun of, we would have... We would have disco nights making fun of disco while disco was still happening. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right? We were so, like, bad. And, you know, we'd have art shows that were, like, making fun on art shows or, like, um, modern art dance uh, performances where, you know, people would roll around and just throw things. We did a religious, uh, um, Tammy Faye Baker, where we had, they were going to bust us. Um, because we had, we were so wild. They were, we heard that they were going to send in the police, so we decided to do a religious revival. <laughs> <laughs> and we did a religious revival that lasted eight hours. Oh my god! And we had like Donna Summer. I mean, it was just so wild. And by the end, we had saved the whole audience. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was Club 57. It was all good fun. But to answer your question, it was when we started getting press and the theater started coming and we became like the it place. The underground, because the Mud Club was like the generation ahead of us. Sorry. The Mud Club was the generation. I just fainted everybody at home. (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So that's so that's that was 1978. And did you live there in East Village? Well, I lived... Um, on Bank Street still? No, I lived... See, I... Bank Street, and then I went back to North Carolina, and then I moved to Castro Street in San Francisco, San Francisco when oh I was 18. Look at you. Yes, and I lived next door to Harvey Milk, who became a dear friend. Did he really? Yeah, he was the sweetest man. Oh. And we just... Next door. You're like mm-hmm. Gabe Zilek. Honey, I am like... I am. <laughs> yes. I was in the middle of... Gay mommy. <laughs> gay mommy but so yeah. I was there in 1975 to 1977 and I went to cast I moved to San Francisco and I heard there were gay people on Castro Street so I said oh here's a place to live so I lived right on Castro Street and I was 18 and just this is all happened by the time you were 18 it's mm-hmm. crazy I was ready for rehab <laughs> And what did you go to San Francisco to do? Well, I told my parents I was going to go to school. And you didn't? I went for like a week. <laughs> <laughs> went for a week. And I just fell into... Um, the arms of a... Of a Marine that um, had just gotten back from Vietnam who was the doorman at the stud. What? And the stud was the rock and roll club on Folsom Street across from Hamburger Mary's. And I was 18 and you had to be 21 to drink. Oh. So you fall in love with the doorman. Right. Wow. So I was there for a while. And then I was getting into too much trouble in San Francisco. And so I said, go to New York. All my friends came from North Carolina to go to ballet school here. So I came here and went to School of Visual Arts. In New York. In New York City. In, in 1970. I moved to New York 1777. January 7th, 1977. That's when I got married, January really? the 7th. Yeah, no, not in 1977, but <laughs> <laughs> terrible. No, but that's my wedding anniversary on January the 7th. But wait a minute, when did all the Club 57 stuff come? After, After. that. I so you were in San Francisco uh, and then you went back to New York. I came back to New York in the, and in 77 I started school and that's when I met Keith and Kenny and Jean-Michel and... They were and, all like, were they all at the same school? Jean-Michel wasn't, but Jean-Michel kind of like hung out this is Jean Michel Basquiat, right? Basquiat, Keith Haring, Kenny, Kenny Sharf. It's so funny. We just went for noodles in the East Village before we came over to Brooklyn, and um, in the loo of the 
that's why I was some time in the loo. Um, they had you fainted again. It's not be the first time I've been in the loo. Uh, they had this all these articles about about Basquiat and stuff like that on the like newspaper articles like in the on the walls. It's fascinating. Um, Oh, and it said, that's right, it said Debbie Harry, the first painting mm-hmm. that um, Jean-Michel Basquiat sold was, was to Debbie Harry for $200. Mm-hmm. Wow. That sounds wow. right. Isn't that funny? Well, well he, um, when I was working at Warhol at the factory, I was like unloading interview magazines in the back, and here's Jean-Michel, and he's like, I wanna, can I go up, can I go up? So I brought him up, and he tried to sell drawings for $25, and I almost lost my job. Well, for letting him in? Well, just for letting someone in, because, you know, Warhol had been shot, and Jean-Michel was basically living on the street, or living where he could, and he came up and was hustling these drawings of, like, airplanes, and because he used to sell them out in front of the St. Mark's Baths. Did he? Yes, on the street. Really? And did you know him when he came up? No. You did know him from around? Yes. I knew him as Samo. Oh, how come? Because he was, because there was, it was a very small community of people in the downtown. You knew every everybody. You would get the phone call. You would go to the same parties. I mean, we were all the same age, so, you know, we tier three, and we were downtown hip hip kids. So we knew everybody. Everybody yeah. kind of. It wasn't like it is today. No, and all spread it. Why? But why was he called Samo? Um, same old shit, or something like that. Same old shit, Samo. He would do graffiti. It was, he would sign at Samo. And so in the city, what was happening, semiotics was starting to happen, you know, like the study of signs yeah. and sign functions. And, and so Keith started doing Crawling Baby. And Samo was really the first, him and a partner, and they would write Samo, and they would write, like, Eat the Rich, or whatever some of his tags were. And you would start, they were appearing all over town and so it was kind of you know downtown was like oh Jean-Michel right and then I think a Nina Nose locked him in the basement and started giving him art supplies he came to Keith and my show and he was like huh you did a show with Keith Herring I was the first one to do a show with Crawling Baby I was the first one to see Crawling Baby Wow, how come? Oh, oh my what? God. I was doing, like, black Kill Me Now paintings. <laughs> he was like, come, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, this will never catch uh, No, I was like, no, someone said, Frank, Frank, this is Keith's time. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, you know. And what was it like working at the factory? You know, it was, this, it was the height of Interview Magazine and, like, Cher and Liza and... Debbie Harry, you know, it's like the Studio 54, so it was very, I don't know, I mean, I was this kid, and I was, like, very intimidated by all of this, and I tried to be nice, but, you know, they were pretty, you know, if I had been better, I would have, you know, wound up with more than just a fucking print. (laughs) 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 I tried to behave myself, but if, now looking at it, I should have just been, like, you know, the gluttonous... Um, I should have used my my youth to extract as many Warhols as I possibly could. But you know, it's like when I go to visit Liza in LA, she sits on her bed and there's this, she's got all the puppies, mm-hmm. loads of them, like just, I don't know, about 10 or something in, above her bed. It looks lovely. But you just sort of think each one of those is worth millions, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And those Liza portraits are my favourite. Yeah. Do you know what's funny? 
she used to have a flat here on 61st Street and when you, when she'd open the door her four Lysas would be behind her really yeah the four oh, Warhols oh, yeah. wow yeah, I love those I, yeah I, I think it was I first I just started working there and Warhol had a show at the Whitney and um, he showed those Lysas and it was it was amazing it was um and I remember I had just started working at Interview and the factory. What did you do there? I did whatever they needed me yeah. to do. Hello. I, yeah. I would answer the phone. I was like, it's Interview, Warhol. And it was like, hi, this is Nancy Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you would always, like, you would answer. I was just a little kid that would answer the phone or sign a number, <laughs> sign a number, or I would do layouts or I would you know ride around with him and go to events events and I was pretty I was a pretty boy so you were on Andy Warhol's arm as a kind of I mean they were like he had like a huge I was wasn't like number one arm right boy I was kind of like I kind of stayed out of it I was there for like four years but it was it was a great I mean, to be a young kid and oh, to... That's been amazing. You know, you go to Studio 54 and you show up with him and you get in. You know, it was like the I, the door... You know, it was, it was yeah. like royalty. It was and like, the, how old are you? Like 18, 19 at this 18, point? 18, 19, 20. Why were we talking about Liza last time we were here? Oh, because I, I was talking about um, when I when they told me I had AIDS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A funny story it starts with that. Yeah, yeah that's hilarious. <laughs> that's how we met. Well, we were talking about Florence used to keep his T cell count on, a, on the blackboard, on the blackboard in, in the, just letting everybody know, you know, this is how many I have left. Yeah. And I was sick. I got sick and I was ended up in North Carolina. I was working for Disney. Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> and I was painting costumes for Kennedy Center and um oh my god, I got very sick, so I flew to North Carolina. And because I said, I knew I was dying, so... Did you, had you been diagnosed? No. But you just... I wasn't going to be... Di- everybody that got diagnosed ended up getting fried, yeah, and they right. just died. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to... I decided not to go that route. So Many of us did. We, we're not going to go th- that way. Because so there were all these experiments of drug we were, trials, and it was just... They were killing us. Yeah. That, did, you know that... I'm sure you've seen the, the, the How to Survive a Plague. Mm-hmm. And I thought one of the most moving parts was the, when the man had been in... He, he couldn't do... His, his reaction to the AZT was so awful, he had to come off it and after, you know, after one thing. And he was just so... And then everyone else in the, in the test died. And he felt that the only reason he had survived was because he wasn't strong enough to, to overcome the, the, the side effects. Isn't that awful? So on top of the fact he lived, all his friends died, and he had this sort of survivor's guilt about the fact that he wasn't strong enough. I just thought that was the saddest thing. Well, I, you know, I had survivor's guilt too. By the time I was diagnosed... I had buried everybody. You were talking about how it was, yeah. like in the eighties. The it was, I mean, it was bizarre because there was so many, there was so much money in the art world that I mean, they would like empty like wads of, they would come in empty paper bags of money into your, you know, into your on your bed to pay for paintings because it was wow. so much commerce coming, and you know, art was really becoming a great commodity and. 
So there was so much money and there was so much drugs, and then everybody started dying. So what year? What, what year was? Did you, when you were painting the Disney thing, and you knew that you? That were was ninety six. Oh, so why? Yeah, you? I held on. I mean, this is amazing. Um, I mean, I held on. How long do you think you were positive before I, you? Did? I think I like f- fucked the the um, airline steward that. Patient <laughs> <laughs> zero. I'll, I used to say. I didn't get a blood transfusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know who I got. I call it. Isn't, I'm fascinated by that. You know that I I I, 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 I don't want to. I always don't mean to pry, but I'm fascinated if ever anyone who is positive knows. Yeah, and they always do. I do. The, I do moments. know who. Do you? Yes. Did and, you? and it was the same. I was diagnosed in 1986 to uh, almost at the same time, and uh, it was funny because I knew I had it. I didn't want to recognize it, but I ended up with pneumonia and a friend of mine took me to the doctor, uh, especially on AIDS at that time. It was Dr. Unger. Unger. You, were, you were here? I was here in New York and it was, uh, uh, he told me, you have pneumonia related to HIV, you have AIDS. And I was like, what is, and it happened that I have 13 cells, 13, oh it, my it was God. that bad, it was that bad, and I tried the ACT, but I like two months after the ACT, that's when they changed the cocktail. To, to another cocktail. And so you adjusted that, because I'm fascinated by that time as well, when everyone thought they were going to die, and suddenly you didn't, and I you was, had this I was planning overtime. to die in, in... Two weeks. I was planning to die in like six months, and so I had... Uh, write letters for my parents. I have write letters for the people that I love and things like that. I put them all over out and I decide like, uh, okay, well, I have a cousin, which is actually a Catholic priest. And I give him the letters and I say like, keep them in case something happened. You just deliver these letters. Yeah. I say like, okay, okay. But um, then everything changed at that point. The article from Dr. Ho came out in the New York Times two weeks after they told me I had six months to live and that there was nothing they could do for me. Go home and die. Get your ducks in a row. You'll be dead three to six months. Mm-hmm. And then you went to North Carolina. I was in North Carolina when all this happened. And then the article came. The article came. I was dying on my mother's couch and my sister brought me the article and said, look. And I was like, what? So then what did you do? You went I to called the- my friend and he said, get the fuck out of North Carolina. Come up. <laughs> <laughs> Best advice. He said, come now. I'll take you to my doctor, Dr. Sonobin. Oh, yeah. And Dr. Sonobin was this cranky old doctor in... English, <laughs> by the way. Oh, he's... The, I mean, and he had like like a brown, old brownstone with like papers everywhere and... And like he was the one who started Amfar, and but yeah. he kind of got kicked out because he was too wild and yeah. radical. Mm-hmm. And um, he took me in, and he he you know saved my life. I mean, I'm like I have a headache. He goes take a aspirin. <laughs> that was the kind of doctor he was. I really yeah. So he was amazing. But yeah. did so you had to because it wasn't like that overnight all these drugs were available. You had to find. I mean, 
we were part of the, the experiments for the, like for the, with the new drugs mm -hmm. because oh, every year they start uh, changing drugs and they start coming out more drugs and drugs and drugs and we were part of that you know we were changing drugs Literally every the first, first every really? ten months every year it was a different medicine a different cocktail that it was coming and coming and coming and suddenly we're here. You know? Yeah. No, it was, it's, it's an amazing thing to like have to tell everybody goodbye and kind of like, exactly. like, you know, see everybody weep for you. And I was like, oh, leave me alone. Me, you know, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but being in North Carolina, the Liza story, I'll just do oh, it really yes. quick. I was very sick. They put me in a room with like, emergency, you know, like tape. And I was like, I was like, Quarantine in North Carolina. I was um, I was, danger, danger. They were like, we got one. <laughs> love it, love it. What a lovely chat. I hope you're enjoying it as much. So many funny stories to come as well in part two. Go over to the feed and have a listen. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.